Traduction. Translation. Traduction. Translator's note. Welcome to the second season of Translator's Note. I'm Julia Conrad, and I translate from Italian. And I'm Abby Ryder-Huth, and I translate from Japanese. This episode, we are thinking about the translation community and the ways that translators support each other. And speaking of communities of translators, we're actually expanding the Translators Note community today. Abby and I have loved hosting and producing this show, and today we're excited to introduce Claire Brager-Belsky, who is taking over the show from here. Yay, welcome, Claire. Uh, Yeah, translation is inherently collaborative and polyphonic. And so we're very excited to have Claire as a new voice on the show, not least because they work from Spanish and Yiddish, which Julia and I are enormous fans of. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be joining you and in the spirit of community to have the chance to talk to and meet so many wonderful translators through working on this podcast. Our first guest is Kelsey Venata, who translates from Spanish and collaboratively from Swedish. Kelsey is also the program manager for ALTA, which stands for the American Literary Translators Association and is perhaps the hub for literary translation in the U.S. I talked to Kelsey about the recent 2021 ALTA conference and about what she's excited about in the world of translation at the moment. You know, one thing that I have seen is this idea of how we build community as translators. And that's something that Alta has always been, has always cared about and has always tried to provide a place for. But I mean, panels and sessions in the last couple of years about translation collectives, right? Folks who are getting together kind of in their, in their local groups, in their areas, um, and, and trying to not just go it alone. There's kind of that image of the, um, of the translator just alone in a room with the with the work. And I think in the last few years, we're, we're rethinking that from what I can see. Uh, we're rethinking how do we rely on each other? How do we support each other? How do we essentially, essentially kind of like unionize, if not officially, then you know, how are we talking to others about the issues that we need help with? Uh, how can we make change in our field as a collective? We just saw that with Jennifer Croft um, and the Authors Authors Guild Society of Authors. I always get the two of them confused. But uh, but that effort to to kind of create an open letter and have folks sign it to increase awareness for putting translators' names on the covers of books that happened as a collective effort. Things like uh, listservs and other ways we use the internet to connect with with other translators as a group, you know, kind of the the rise of these different online reading series for putting the focus on translators, YouTube channels like Jill or Translators Allowed that provide a place for us to speak about our own work and represent that, or the the caucuses that Ulta has tried to support and foster as well. There's a BIPOC caucus that started last year and has grown to, I think, a couple hundred members at this point, um, and is really just finding cool ways to, to support each other and uh, to listen to, you know, to the needs of, of that community and to bring those to Alta so that we can do what we can to support. There's a Queering Translation Caucus as well, and, and who knows what, what other ones might 
might emerge. So yeah, I feel like that sense of community and collective and how do we do that as translators, that's a trend maybe that I've seen in recent years. Alongside maybe the other one I would mention is thinking a lot about mentorship in our in our field. Alta has, you know, Alta has a mentorship program that I also have the, the opportunity to run. It's one of my favorite parts of my job uh, where I get to help pair emerging translators with more established translators to work on a project. And it's really designed for folks who haven't had access to an MFA program or that kind of training. Um, and our mentorship program has, has really grown. We've just seen the demand grow, the application numbers, the funders who are willing to support such an endeavor, that, that has grown as well. And I think mentorship is happening and we're talking about it in a lot of um, like in a lot of other informal contexts too, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be through the structure of a program, but I think translators are, are thinking a lot about how to kind of pass along what we have learned often through, you know, a lot of really hard work or not having a lot of guidelines and, and, and hoping to help the next um, generation or the next crop of translators along uh, with, what, with what we've learned, things like, you know, uh, the Authors Guild uh, created that model contract for translators. That's a, that's a kind of a mentorship to me. It's, it's online, it's available to anybody. Um, and, and so establishing that kind of like channels of information sharing is something I've also seen grow. I'm especially interested in the idea of forging translation communities. And I wonder if this sort of Zoom moment that we're in is mm. actually helping with that. Because I mean, we by necessity are such a multilingual community, which often also leads to just being completely scattered and spread mm. out, you know, and Zoom has sort of allowed people just overall to connect across physical distance in a way that you certainly could before Zoom has existed for longer, mm -hmm. but there was never really the societal impetus. It was just, you know, there's the people around you and maybe there's the people who you met in an MFA program and kept a connection with, mm -hmm. but there was suddenly this moment of we can create community deliberately across distance. And I, that feels like something that is especially productive for translators who are so scattered. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. We really saw it last year with Alta's virtual conference. We had 650 attendees to the virtual conference, which was far more than any we've ever seen in the in-person conferences. And, and a lot of folks reached out to tell us, I would, you know, I've been looking for a group like this, or I would have never had access to the conversations that you're having or to other translators in this way, if the conference were not virtual. Um, and it was, yeah, it was also just amazing to kind of track in our conference platform where folks were tuning in from, which was in every continent except for Antarctica. <laughs> uh, we had a we had a staff joke about how we had to recruit some penguins to to listen in in the future. But um, yeah, I think that's really, I think that's totally true. And I think the Zoom space, the virtual space, is we're seeing how it can be conducive. We're seeing how you know burnout is also very real and maybe you don't want to go to another virtual conference and I really get that um, but I think it can be yeah it can be a really good space for that our mentorships take place over zoom you know the mentor and the mentee they meet up in person at the ideally 
in person at the conference at the end of their program, but those conversations are always carried out um, over Zoom. And it, we've been able to include authors reading with their translators at some of our bilingual reading series. So things like that um, are a really cool benefit. Yeah, I guess I'm hoping that as we ideally move into a more hybrid space that we're able to keep those sorts of gains that have come throughout this time. I think it also, like you mentioned, really helps with access people yeah. and, and maybe helping to destabilize some of the barriers put up by the academy in a field like this. Just the fact of having all of our sessions recorded and available to, to listen at a different time or to listen again or to share with a student, things like that are definitely a real, a real benefit. So I don't have any no spoilers here. I can't tell you what the Ulta conference will look like next year because we really have not had those conversations yet. <laughs> <laughs> we need to see how this how this in-person one goes and then have some, yeah, really have some serious talks about uh, what what aspects of virtual will Alta hold on to um, in the future and which things are really a great space. We've done uh, pitch sessions with translation editors and workshops with established translators. I think Zoom has worked really well for, for those. So um, maybe there'll be parts that we retain online and, and parts that we try to do in person. To dive somewhere, to try to dive somewhere specific, are there any projects just like either that you've seen coming out or that you've been working on that you're really excited about within you know, a specific language or a specific work? I think I'm excited recently about collaborative translations or co-translations. Co I've done that a little bit with a, with a few friends um, and I really enjoyed the process of translating something with another person and having someone to bounce ideas off of. I think we've also seen it just be really successful. Alta's National Translation Award in Poetry last year was um, was won by a, the translation team that translated Hysteria by Kim Ijeung, published by Action Books. Uh, and just to hear that team of translators talk about how they were able to bring this work together and with all of their sense of, all their different sensibilities into English really fascinated me. So it's something I, I would like to, to do more of, I think. Um, I just finished to speak about a little bit about my own work. I just finished a, a translation of the text for an art book, which is the first time I've ever done that. I've worked for a number of years now with Andrea Chapela, who's a Mexican writer. And she actually, she was at Iowa as well. We met in the, in the translation classes. Um, and uh, we've done a number of projects together. I've translated her in a few different ways, but she recently did a collaboration with a Mexican photographer and, and Andrea wrote the text for the book. And then there's photographs that, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not in a relationship of illustration. It's really creating a, a new work where the, the image and the text say something more together. So that was a just really pretty cool and special to, to work on. And I'm excited for, for it to come out and to, to hold that book. That's really interesting. How do you think that the just the presence of those photos that aren't illustrations of the text affected your translation project or process for it? Yeah, well, to be to be fair, I only 
first, I only saw the text. I only had, you know, I was working from a Word doc. Um, and there were some places where I, to be honest, I just, I had to ask Andrea a lot of questions. Like, I can't see what's happening here. Can you describe this again? And then when I got the text of the, like a, a PDF of the art book with the photographs, it all just made a lot more sense that, you know, the text couldn't stand on its own as sort of what I realized in an interesting way. Um, they've also tried to make this particular book very interactive. So that was part of what was hard for me to understand without seeing any of it, is that there are places where the, they are sort of asking the reader or the person holding this book to fold some of the pages and to sort of make changes to the text as they experience it. I couldn't conceptualize it until I saw the art or I had to think very carefully about where to, uh, it is prose, but there are some moments where the text is kind of broken into little pieces and I had to think very carefully about where to break the English lines so that a similar kind of experience with turning a page and seeing the other half of the line or folding a corner and seeing a word appear, I had to think carefully about where to make the, the breaks in the English translation too. Which sounds sort of like poetry, but also poetry isn't usually interactive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not all poetry is anyway. Yeah, I'm also very interested in what you were saying about collaborative translations in relationship to what we were talking about earlier with community building and sort of just this overall shift from translator alone in their room mm -hmm. to not to forming like larger communities and collectives and men mentorship and all of that, but also mm -hmm. working on specific texts together. You said you've yeah. done a little bit of that yourself. Can you talk about what that's like? I've worked on um, translating one book of poems with my friend Violeta Gil, who's from Spain. We were working on a book of Blanca Varela's poems, and uh, it was just really great to work through that. Both of us, we would usually each prepare our own version and then compare them. And that way, we just got to kind of pick the best of what we had both done. Sure, that probably wouldn't work for every project. This was fairly short poems and a fairly short book, but but that's kind of how the how the process worked for us, at least, uh, was to sort of pick the best of what we what we each had come up with. I would venture to say that this kind of shift, if we're seeing one toward thinking about translation in community is also partly due to, how, or it's explained perhaps by how we think about what translation is. You know, if we have that view of translation being a one-to-one -one or um, that there is kind of like a correct something that we just slot in and then we've transferred, right? We've made a transfer from one language to the next. If that is what you think about as translation, then I can see how that could be a more singular pursuit. Like, why does it take more than one person? I just have to pick a right word <laughs> in the new language and then it's done, right? I mean, I'm being over, I'm oversimplifying things, of course, but I, I like to think that the understanding of translation as an as a creative art form and as a, a way of sort of creating a new text alongside the, the original text to describe it as Karen Emmerich does. I think that that idea or that uh, reimagination of, of how translation works or what it does, that to my mind has to lead to this idea of, of being able to do it more with, with others.
Kelsey's comments about collaboration got us thinking about translation collectives that translators form as spaces of mutual creative and professional support. So Julia reached out to another Alta. Alta Price is an award-winning translator from German and Italian with a background in visual art. She runs a publishing consultancy that specializes in texts on art, architecture, design, and culture, and is also an active member in numerous translation collectives and initiatives, including Zadia and Co. and Third Coast Translators Collective, among many others. I reached out to Alta to learn a little bit more about how translation collectives work and how they influence her own work. So one day she called me and she said, look, I've taken on this translation project. Half of it is from English into Italian and that's the half I'm going to do. I need to find somebody who can do the other half. Mm-hmm. And that was going from Italian into English. And I said, Maria, you know, she went to school for many years to become an interpreter. I said, look, I have not studied translation. I had done informal, but under no circumstances did I feel adequately trained to create something for publication. And she said, look, you know, you and I always speak in Italian. So I know your level of Italian. I've read your writing in English and I know that you can do this. She said to me, so, <laughs> and I said to her, if you're willing to, if you are feeling patience enough and willing to take me under your wing. And I really thought it would be a one-off, like help out my friend Maria, mm-hmm. um, learn, learn a lot. And just, um, but it really snowballed into that one project led to another, led to another. So that's how I really got my start in translation. I mean, it, it sort of leads me to my next question about when did you start thinking more collectively about translation? Um, because that does seem like a very collective beginning just to have been tapped by a friend and then working, I'm assuming somewhat collaboratively at first. And, and translation is just naturally, obviously very collaborative in terms of working with an author or just um, calling your informants to, to get uh, the info on certain words. But you, I feel like, take it to a completely new level in terms of being active in so many different organizations. So I was wondering, what got you started on that path once you were starting to do this work more regularly as a translator? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really grateful that you're emphasizing the collective nature of translation in and of itself. Project, each text, each book really sets up its own parameters, I think. So some call for more collaboration than others. So to get back to your question of the, the collective nature of it, so I would not have been a translator had, not, had it not been for a translator reaching out to me. That just wouldn't have happened. So that first experience of really being sort of taken under the wing, it was really, I think, an informal mentorship. And the rest of my career was built on a whole bunch of other informal mentorships. And when I think mm-hmm. about this, and I'm saying this to you, I think a lot of people I consider my informal mentors maybe don't even know that they're my <laughs> informal mentors. Uh, but I, my experience has been translators, especially literary translators, can be incredibly generous. Yeah. Um, So it's sharing ideas, sharing different solutions, sharing business tips. Um, Interesting, because I'm imagining that you would say, I don't know, I was thinking about your background in art and how how critique and artists are often really collaborative. And then also in Italy, maybe just because I'm currently in Italy, there's a Mm -hmm. really long tradition of collectives and it just seems more natural here that people are like, yeah, let's form this insert 
collective. But I, I love the idea that it's actually kind of the community of translators that created a reciprocal generosity in terms of creating even more spaces where translators can work together and, and support each other. Yeah. Well, I do think, okay, in terms of the collaborative effort, and it's interesting because in my mind, I think there is some overlap between collective and collaborative. Mm -hmm. So the work of translation is inherently collaborative, even if you're, you feel like you're working solo, but it is interesting. Actually, my first job out of undergraduate school was in an art center and I was working with artists. My memory of it now is this was absolutely translation, even though it was from one visual medium to another. And it was interesting because at the time, I think I had this idea of the Western tradition of artistic creative creation, like the the creative individual genius, right? Mm -hmm. Combined with this American mythos of rugged individualism. And I'm going to try not to get too off track here, but I think there is this idea that artistic genius manifests itself in one creative voice. And even if you say this creative voice is channeling the muses or something, it's still this individual Mm -hmm. bringing it into the world. And so at the time I was working in paper and I was working with these artists who'd never worked in paper. And it was very frustrating for me because they would bring in these ideas and they would say, oh, I want to do X, Y, Z. And I would say, okay, but paper can't do that. Or it can't do that the way that you're envisioning it. We're going to have to find another solution. Um, and I experienced it at that time. I felt as though I was like, they had this vision and wanted to work in this new medium. And I was there to facilitate their artistic expression in this new medium. And yet I was only seeing the, the parts where I felt like I was failing. Because I knew their original work and I could see when they were talking about what they wanted to do, what they wanted to do. And I think by no means was this a shared, you know, they did not consider the work a failure at all. It was my own seeing the changes and that registering as that, that trope of what's lost in translation. Right. right? So it was, oh, well, they did this and it became this. And, and so that, that middle space was lost. And I think at, this is 20 years later, I can look back and see it wasn't a loss. It was a shift. It was a change. It was a transformation a metamorphosis. That work gain. I, I really now focus on what is gained in translation because I think it's so easy to talk about what's lost you know, what's gained is if a writer is writing in a certain language, and I feel like a lot of the things I'm saying are completely obvious, but also worth saying, because yeah. the way that we talk about translation in English, I think frequently does a disservice both to authors and translators, but also to readers. I mean, I, you're not reading a second rate shadow of some luminous original. English was talked about as a medium and in, in your very first episode you know, certain media do certain things and other media do others. So, yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's also interesting because it goes back to what you were saying about individual genius and how the translator is also showing the reader that um, a work of writing doesn't have to come from just one voice. And I think about this a lot because I used to work in publishing and there's mm -hmm. a lot of capital put into the name, the individual name of the author. Um, and just yes. how that the new push for translator's name on the cover uh, mm -hmm. is also kind of working against that. But switching gears slightly. Um, so you, I, I, I made a list of the organizations that you're in 
from your website because I couldn't memorize them all. But um, you're in <laughs> Alta, the Authors Guild, Sedilla and Co., the Pen Translation Committee, the New York Circle of Translators, the Third Coast Translators Collective, and Women in Translation many of which you have leadership positions in or are very actively involved in. So I was actually surprised when we were emailing a few months ago and you were like, we should start a collective of Southern Italian women in translation. <laughs> I was like, don't you have enough that you're doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but so like, I guess maybe starting with the, the more formal uh, translators collectives, um, what, what is a translators collective and how does it work in your experience? Great question. Okay. What is a translators collective? It's a collection of translators, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and that's really all I can say because I have seen so many different models. I'm intrigued and it's really exciting. My personal experience, I'm a member of Sedilla and Company. If you're saying Sedilla and Company or any other version, I just want to put this out there. This is one of the most fun things about the name of that collective is that all, even members, we pronounce the name differently. (laughs) There's no one right way, right? It's a diacritical mark. So different languages treat that diacritical mark differently. So I've had people, you know, say Sedilla and they're like, oh, is it really Sedilla? And I was like, there's, you know, no rules. Um, (laughs) So just putting that out there. And that's, that's the one I'm most active in. I think TCTC, Third Coast Translators Collective, I joined when I moved to Chicago. So those two collectives are completely different models. The American Literary Translators Association, they actually have a really great resource page that gives uh, names and brief description of the 13 literary translation collectives that are affiliated with Alta. So I encourage your listeners to look that up. You can take a language-centric approach. You can take a geographic approach. You know, certain focuses in translation. So there could be genre, the linguistic, the geographic, also open or closed. That's so cool. Given the kind of liminal space that translators work in, those collectives can be a source of really useful guidance. I mean, obviously also on the Alta, the other Alta website, Uh, (laughs) uh, and like there's shared guidance but I think having that moral support it's particularly useful in this field where like there there isn't as much of a centralized code in terms of business practice I think it's really challenging to make a living as a literary translator in the United States Mm -hmm. Um, I feel very lucky I routinely think why do I do this (laughs) Um, and then I, and then I, I love what I do and I love working with the authors. I love publishing work. I love hearing from readers who are reading authors that they would never have access to, but you know, it's to make it a a feasible living is challenging. So Sedilla, I think we started out with this idea of, oh, we're all literary translators. Most of us are working in pretty different languages and different working with different publishers. And this idea was, oh, well, we can pool our resources and our connections. And a lot of us have been addressing that idea of, well, a lot agents, agents frequently don't wish to work with translators because 
the, the, the fees are so small that it's, it's not worth an agent's while, or it's perceived that way. So we were talking a lot about the professionalization of the field at that time. We wanted to pull resources to advance our own careers. And I, I'm quite heartened. I think my experience of being part of Sedilla and company over the past five years is that we started there and then it pretty quickly, but then much more rapidly took off to, okay, well, this is not about boosting ourselves. Yes, each of us has projects that we love that might be difficult to convince a U.S. publisher to pick up, difficult to help find a readership in English. But beyond our own work, looking at the field, this has been talked about a lot, right? Like the lily whiteness of North American publishing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think lip service is paid to, and it's, it's especially easy with translation to say, oh, well, we're all progressive. We're all open-minded. We, because we speak more than one language, uh, which a lot of, you know, is not a given in the United States, that we're inherently open to other perspectives, but scratch below that surface. And it, mm, I don't want to say it's not true. I'll just say that it's, it's extra challenging, I think, to bring certain voices, certain languages, certain visions of the world and certain narrative styles into English. Mm -hmm. um, so as a collective in Sedilla, we were thinking, okay, well, most of us have had a certain amount of, of success. Um, I was editing the Sedilla newsletter for a while, and that was just brought me such immense joy because I was just in complete awe of what my fellow translators were doing. Um, <laughs> the work that they were doing. And uh, several members of Sedilla have been mentors through the Alta mentorship program. So I want to mm -hmm. put that out there. I'm constantly referring, speaking to people who are considering translation or looking, looking at getting into the field. And I, and I just think I did not go through an, a, an official men mentorship program, but I think they're invaluable. Mm -hmm. Again, I really relied upon the expertise and experience and generosity of other translators as I was getting my start. So I feel a personal responsibility, like doors were held open for me. I need to hold doors open for other people. And there are different ways to do that. I can look at, okay, well, what's being published in English that's translated from Italian. There was an Alta panel, actually. I feel like Olivia Sears, I think, from the Center for the Art of Translation gave this great presentation looking at the current state of Italian literature and, and English translation. I, and I, have a, I come from a family of scientists. So mm -hmm. I was looking at this in sort of the ecology of translation, right? The ecology of what is, what is this biome of Italian work coming into English look like? And it was really unhealthy, <laughs> meaning over 50 or 60% of the titles published annually were done by like two or three translators, mm -hmm. right? Now, so there are certain dynamics where, okay, you know that in at a publishing house, it's easier for them and they're more likely to work with translators. They know that they have already worked with. That's just a given. Um, but then there's the whole acquisitions, like what, what author's works are they buying the rights to? So of course, you know, you get Elena Ferrante and there's Ferrante fever and, and maybe some other publishers will think, okay, well, let's find the next Elena Ferrante. But looking beyond that, 
right? So what other voices are we not hearing from Italy and the role that translators can play in that? And that's what I'm very excited about. We've talked a lot about uh, other translators and, and collective work. So this is maybe like the opposite of the theme, but I wanted to just close by asking you about your own individual practice as a translator and maybe one example of something that you either are or were working on um, and a way that a collective kind of influenced it. Oh, that's a great question. So I recently translated, and this is coming out sort of terrifyingly soon, um, a German author named Mitu Zanyal. Her novel is called Identity. And it was shortlisted for the German Book Prize. Uh, thank you to her, for her. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an absolutely amazing, and I think, so the collective role, again, you know, I've, I'm in dialogue with her. She's an incredibly generous author. It's an incredibly polyphonic source work. It is about, as one might surmise from the title, it's about identity politics. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the narrative unfolds in tweets. So you've got dialogue, but then you'll have some, some social media posts from one of the characters. And then you'll have these Twitter storms of responses. And she plays with the Twitter handles um, to make it even richer and more complex. I would say about half of them are actual real people who contributed tweets to her original book, wow. which was just a brilliant idea. And a translation so, challenge. <laughs> a, a, a wonderful translation challenge that I've been, I worked intensely with the editor on of, um, because they were like, well, what about, shouldn't an English language translation of a German original, if it had real people tweeting, contributing tweets to the original, and then the, having others that are clearly made up um, or clearly riffing on a real person, but because of the Twitter handle, you know that it's a, a fictitious character. Wouldn't we, in bringing this into English, want to bring North American Anglophone tweets into this? And it's just, it, it was fascinating because we need to preserve the markers that the reader has to remember this whole story is unfolding in Germany. It's very specifically located in a specific place at a specific time. And we can't erase that. And, right. and that's harder. And it's also, so she's got one of the characters is originally from England, but speaks German. So there are markers in the German original. But to bring this back to the collective work of it, I think, I am not on Twitter. Many of my colleagues are. I had extensive conversations with many of them of the dynamic of Twitter and um, how how different cultures how you know there's there are different subcultures on twitter but there are also mm -hmm. different different language approaches to twitter yes wow so i had a lot of collective input from fellow translators but also also just writers in other languages for for how to how to finesse that dynamic to preserve to the best of my ability, uh, you know, this polyphonic nature, but also make it accessible to English language readers. 
Like you need to know that this, you know, this is the troll, this character that just sent this tweet, you need to, that's the troll. That's the toxic, you know, <laughs> regressive, <laughs> offensive, uh, you know, there are also the linguistic challenges of, of extreme hatred and bias in language. Um, mm. And that was fascinating and terrifying and absolutely, I mean, needed collective support from fellow translators for just the norms. Me tapping into the wisdom of other people and, and experiences to do this, do this uh bizarre and brilliant work justice in English. Wow. Thank you for sharing that example because that just sounds like I don't envy that as in terms of its difficulty, but also just in terms of literature, that sounds really exciting. And um the challenge itself also I think is really rich with so many different themes of of translation that make it fun and also it's not just the language that's being translated but also like the the cultural practices around different media so Mm -hmm. wow that's so cool yeah I, I guess as the last thing I just hope that this inspires people to start their own collectives and create these spaces of mutual support and especially in the holes or gaps that are in the translation community um I hope so too it's so inspiring just seeing the disparity between what is already on North American publishers radars um and Mm -hmm. and acquiring editors radars and and what isn't and knowing that um that 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 will change somehow or other and that will change because translators are working together Translator's Note is produced by Claire Brigerbelsky, Abby Ryder-Huth, and Julia Conrad. This show is an affiliate of Exchange's Journal of Literary Translation and is made with the support of the University of Iowa Department of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures and the International Writing Program. Thanks to Nate Repaz for the theme music and credit for other music used in the show can be found on our website. As always, Translator's Note also wants to thank Aruna Ji, Jan Stein, and the MFA in Literary Translation community at the University of Iowa for their support, and our guests, Kelsey Venata and Alta Price, and all of you for listening. Okay. Traduction.